It's great to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for uh, choosing to worship with us uh, today. Uh, We're blessed to have you, and I hope that your heart will be blessed and enriched by our time of worshiping God together through song and now uh, worshiping God uh, together through opening our hearts and our ears and listening to him as uh, he speaks to us through his word. And to that end, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 39. Uh, Genesis 39, we're coming back to our series um, through the book of Genesis, and we're going to find ourselves in chapter uh, 39 uh, this morning. And my goal this morning is to cover the full length of Genesis 39. And if you want to give a title to the message, it would be Joseph Blooms in slavery and shackles. Joseph Blooms in slavery and uh, shackles. I've long been uh, fascinated by things that grow and flourish in unexpected places. Uh, When I see such a thing, uh, I actually try to take a picture of it. I'm no professional photographer, but I try to capture a picture of it on my iPhone Uh, Here's a picture I took several months ago of a tree growing through a hole in a sidewalk in Moreno Valley. Uh, In our neighborhood, I took a picture uh, several weeks ago of a tree that reappears uh, every spring through the openings in the post of a street sign. Uh, Here's a flower that is growing through a hole in some bricks that one of my nieces took a couple years ago. There's something about seeing those kinds of things that, that I find instructive and even encouraging. Uh, these trees, for example, that you see in the photos will never grow as big as they might have grown if they had been planted elsewhere, but they grow where they are planted and they give glory to God. Uh, The little tree that you see to my left and your right um, will not last long, I am sure, but it will grow and it will give glory to God until someone mows it down or steps on it. Some of us wish that our circumstances were different than what they are right now. We're not thrilled about where God has planted us At the present time, we wish we were in a different place than where we find ourselves right now and in different circumstances. But our mindset should be wherever God in his good providence plants me, that's where I will flourish. By the grace of God, I will bloom in the spot where God has planted me and I will give glory to him. Amen. That's exactly what we see happening with Joseph in Genesis 39, the chapter we'll be looking at today, where we, he, he essentially finds himself planted in a place that he would have never wanted to be. Being raised in a dysfunctional family, he was hated by his brothers and sold by them to some Ishmaelites who took him down to Egypt and sold him as a slave in the land of Egypt. 
We find him in Genesis 39 living as a slave in Potiphar's house this morning. While working in Potiphar's house, Joseph ends up getting falsely accused and thrown into prison where we find him living by the time this chapter 39 comes to an end. No one would have ever thought that such locations of Potiphar's house as a slave and prison being falsely accused, no one would have ever thought that those locations were ideal places for anyone to flourish. But by the grace of God, Joseph, it seems, had a great attitude and was able to bloom in the places where God had planted him. And we actually see the language of such flourishing throughout the length of Genesis 39 today. In fact, observe with me the language of flourishing in this chapter. In verse 2, we're told that while Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house, that the Lord was with Joseph and that Joseph became a successful man, literally a man of success. In verse 3, we are told again that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper. In verse 4, we're told that Joseph found favor in the sight of his master. In verse 5, we're told that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph and that the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned as a result. In verse 21, we're told that while Joseph was in prison, that the Lord was with Joseph, that the Lord extended kindness to him and that the Lord gave him favor. And in verse 23, we're told one final time that the Lord was with Joseph while he was in prison. And we're told that whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper in prison. Clearly, Joseph is flourishing in the difficult places where he finds himself. And in the process, we're going to see as the chapters unfold that God is using his circumstances to further his great plan to use Joseph to bring rescue to his family in the coming years. We're going to learn a number of things from this chapter but overall, we learn from Genesis 31 that we should cherish God's presence with us in the midst of difficult circumstances. We should trust that God is using our circumstances to serve his larger redemptive purposes. We should have a good attitude about that, and we should ask God to help us to bloom where he has planted us in the meantime. That's what Joseph does in this chapter, as we will see today. The way we're going to break down our study of this chapter is we will observe six developments in the story of how Joseph flourishes in Potiphar's house and in prison. And the first of these developments, we can state this way, that God prospers Joseph in Potiphar's house. God prospers Joseph in Potiphar's house. Observe what happens in verse 1. The text says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, 
And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Notice the word taken is used twice. And the word bought is used once in this passage. And Joseph has no say in any of these actions. He's a victim of slave trafficking. In fact, later in the next chapter, he's going to use the word kidnap to describe what's happening to him here. Being trafficked in this way would be a nightmare scenario for anyone. That said, we learn here that the man who purchases him is an Egyptian officer who is described as the captain of the bodyguard. In other words, he's the head of Pharaoh's security team. And being purchased by Potiphar puts Joseph in an aristocratic house and brings him very close to the halls of power in Egypt. Things could have gone worse for Joseph than evidently they did. Once Joseph is brought to Potiphar's house, he doesn't sulk and mope and complain about being a slave and being away from his family. He seems to trust God's providence, and he's doing the best that he can in the circumstances that God has placed him, and he flourishes as a result. Observe what happens in verse 2. The text says, The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. So we're told here that God was with Joseph, meaning that he's with Joseph to help him and provide companionship for him. Second, we're told that Joseph became a successful man. And third, we're told that Joseph was in the house of his master. This means that he did not get assigned to do the strenuous work out in the fields as other slaves would have been assigned to do. He got to work inside his master's house. And it probably also means that he got to actually live in the house rather than having to sleep in the slaves' quarters with the rest of the slaves. As Joseph works for Potiphar from day to day, Potiphar realizes very quickly that he hit the jackpot with Joseph. Look at verse 3. Now his master, who's Potiphar, saw that the Lord, who is Jehovah, was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. The language here indicates that Joseph must have said something to Potiphar about his God, Jehovah, because we're told here that Potiphar saw that Jehovah was with him, which means that Potiphar came to believe that it was truly Jehovah who was causing all that Joseph did to prosper in his hand. If you had asked Potiphar about Joseph, Potiphar would have said, everything I put under Joseph's oversight seems to thrive under the blessing of Jehovah, whom I have come to learn is Joseph's God. It should come as no surprise to us then that these observations make Potiphar really, really like Joseph. 
Look at verse 4. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he, Potiphar, made him overseer over his house. And all that he owned, he put in Joseph's hand or in his charge. So Potiphar makes Joseph his right-hand man. He gives him oversight over his house and every single thing he owned. He basically entrusted that to Joseph's oversight, leadership, administration, and care. Well, how do things go once Potiphar elevates Job or Joseph in this way? This brings us to the second development in this story of how Joseph flourishes in Potiphar's house and ultimately in prison. Number two, God blesses Potiphar's house on account of Joseph. God made a promise. You can write this reference down in Genesis 12, 3 to Abraham saying, I will bless those who bless you. That's the promise God makes to Abraham. And we actually see that promise being fulfilled to some degree here. Observe what is said in verse 5. It came about that from the time that Potiphar made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. All-encompassing blessing upon Potiphar and all that had anything to do with him. Potiphar is being good to Joseph, and as a result, God is being good to Potiphar. Potiphar notices this, and it just makes him want to bless Joseph and trust him even more. The blessing of God upon Joseph causes Potiphar to increasingly rest easy with Joseph being in charge of all of his affairs. In fact, look at what is said in verse 6. The text says, So he, Potiphar, left everything he owned in Joseph's hand, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. So he didn't just hand everything over to Joseph. He left it in Joseph's hand because he saw that Joseph was worthy of his trust. And with Joseph being there in his house and in this position, Potiphar did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. That final phrase in verse 6 doesn't mean that Joseph was not in charge of those who grew and prepared Potiphar's food. It's really just a proverbial way of saying that Potiphar never had to worry about anything other than feeding his face. He could forget about everything else and know that all will be well taken care of. And the only decision that he needed to worry about making each day was regarding what he wanted to eat for his meals. By the way, ask God to help you be this kind of employee for your bosses, an employee who is responsible, an employee whom God is with, an employee 
whom the heart of your boss can safely trust, an employee who causes the company that you work for, even if being run by pagans, to prosper. We need more Christian employees like this. Anyway, what we see here so far in Genesis 39 is a beautiful scene of Joseph's industry and faithfulness and of God blessing him and elevating him to the highest position possible for him as a slave in Potiphar's house. But in the midst of this wonderful scene, a danger appears which will shatter the peace and change everything. This brings us to the third development in the story of the flourishing of Joseph from Potiphar's house all the way to prison. Number three, Potiphar's wife tries and fails to seduce Joseph into sexual sin. Potiphar's wife tries and fails to seduce Joseph into sexual sin. Observe what is said about Joseph in verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Ladies, if you want to compliment your husband, tell him that he is handsome in form and in appearance. Literally, the text reads in the Hebrew, Joseph was beautiful in form and beautiful in appearance, with the word beautiful being used twice here for emphasis. This exact description is used only one other time in the Bible, and it is used to describe Joseph's mother, Rachel, back in Genesis 29, verse 17. She also was beautiful in form and beautiful in appearance, and evidently so is her son, Joseph. As one writer says, the language here is photographic and aims to give us some idea of what Joseph looked like. A modern rendering of the language here would be that Joseph was well-built and handsome. Later on in the Old Testament, David and Absalom uh, will be described as beautiful in appearance, but Joseph is the only man in the Bible who is said to be both beautiful in form and beautiful in appearance. In other words, he's the only man in the Bible whom we are told was well-built. It's one thing to have the privilege of being a heroic character in the Bible it's another thing to have the inspired scripture describe you as well-built and handsome. That's pretty cool. Normally, the Bible doesn't bother to tell us about such things because beauty is truly only skin deep. But the narrator of Genesis gives us this information about Joseph because it gives us a context for understanding what is about to happen next. As one commentator says, amid Joseph's many blessings, he suffers from one endowment too many, stunning beauty. 
And Joseph's beauty is about to make him the target of a lustful woman's advances. Look at verse 7. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. In the last chapter, we saw how Tamar wanted to lie with Judah so that she could have a son through Judah. In this chapter, Potiphar's wife wants Joseph to lie with her simply because she desires him. So she says to him, literally, she commands him, lie with me. This is a stunning moment. And we should appreciate the fact that what is happening here is not the same thing as a man being propositioned by a peer at a party. There is a power differential here that makes what is happening doubly troublesome. This is the wife of Joseph's master commanding Joseph to lie with her. Almost certainly she had done this kind of thing with other slaves who have obliged her and done her bidding. In fact, the Jewish commentator Nahum Sarna tells us that sexual promiscuity was a perennial feature of all slave societies. It was part of the reason you sometimes hired or purchased slaves. As the wife of Joseph's master, Potiphar's wife almost certainly felt entitled to use Joseph however she liked. And she would have expected him to comply and obey her command precisely because she was the wife of his master. In her mind, Joseph should be flattered that she would want him to lie with her. And the fact that Joseph is a slave makes Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife all the more remarkable. While Joseph is willing to be a good slave and compliant with all of his other slave duties, he will not be giving in to Potiphar's wife's demands, whatever the cost may end up being for his disobedience to her command. In fact, observe Joseph's response beginning in verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? You know, we often commend, and rightly so, we commend Joseph for fleeing sin in the coming verses, but he doesn't flee here. He's appealing to Potiphar's wife in an effort to justify his disobedience to her command. And he's trying to explain himself in a way that shows her respect and helps her to appreciate his refusal to obey her command. 
He first points to Potiphar and the enormous trust that Potiphar has placed in him. Certainly, she would understand that it would be the ultimate betrayal for Joseph to violate such trust from Potiphar. Secondly, Joseph reminds her that she is Potiphar's wife. And thirdly, Joseph alludes to God's moral law and calls such actions a great evil. He then points to God and says, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? To commit immorality with Potiphar's wife, Joseph would be sinning against her, against Potiphar, against himself, and against his God. And Joseph responds to her by essentially saying, I simply can't do that with all due respect. Obviously, Joseph has carried his belief in the truths about God with him to Egypt as much as he's been betrayed. He believes in God and the truth about God. He believes that God is a holy God who has the right to direct our lives when it comes to sex, who has the right to tell us what is good and what is evil. Joseph knows that God created the institution of marriage, and he created marriage to be the one place where sexual intimacy should be enjoyed by a man and his wife. Any sexual intimacy between people outside of marriage is the sin of fornication and adultery. And if you read the rest of Scripture, you see that these are serious sins for which people will be damned to hell if they commit them and don't repent and obtain forgiveness from God through Jesus. Our culture today thinks that such sins are no big deal. Joseph here is staring in the face of his boss's wife, who thinks these acts are no big deal. Yet as flattered and tempted as Joseph might have been, he resists the temptation, refuses her advances, and says no. In this moment, Joseph could have easily rationalized his sin if he wanted to. After all, he's hundreds of miles from his family, who's back in Canaan. And the reason he's away from his family is because his brothers mistreated him and sold him into slavery. Surely people would understand Joseph finding a little bit of comfort in the arms of another man's wife. He could have let his bitterness against God lend some justification to his willingness to ignore God's law in this one instance. He also could have thought, this woman is my master's wife and I'm just doing my duty as a slave to obey her. It's part of my job. He could have been thinking, maybe this is the only way for me to get ahead and become the ruler that God has told me he wants me to become by sleeping my way to the top. Joseph doesn't give way to any of these rationalizations. He resists them all and resists the temptation 
to lie with Potiphar's wife and tells her no. Some of you young people may wonder how you would respond if something like this were ever to happen to you. If it hasn't happened to you already, your moment will almost certainly come when you are being pressured by peers, by coworkers, or by a boss to violate your conscience and to sin against God's word. And I would highly recommend that you not wait until such a moment arrives before you try to figure out how you're going to respond. Decide now how you're going to respond when that moment comes. And I pray that your response will be something like Joseph's response here in Genesis 39. And by the way, if your moment has already come and you chose wrongly, you've sinned, run to the cross and repent of your sin, making no excuses. And God will be delighted to forgive you and to give you grace, his forgiving grace through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you at the cross It would be important for you to repent and receive that forgiveness and forgiving grace from God, knowing that the experience of the forgiveness of God through Christ for your sin is always the first step to walking in freedom from that sin. Well, Joseph gives a wonderful speech that we could spend a whole sermon just studying this speech that he delivers to Potiphar's wife. It's a wonderful speech full of pathos and wisdom and even goodwill toward Potiphar's wife, but she isn't moved by it at all. She's moved only by her lust for Joseph. The irony here is that Joseph is the slave and she is free, yet she is the slave to her desires And Joseph is the one who's truly morally free. We're told in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 26, that the adulteress hunts for the precious life. And that's what Potiphar's wife is doing with Joseph here in this moment and in the days that followed. Observe what she does in verse 10 and observe how Joseph responds. Verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph Day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. I am sure that she used all kinds of flattery, telling Joseph how handsome and desirable he was. She probably would have also promised him secrecy and pleasure as she pleaded with him to lie with her. But Joseph, we're told here, persistently refuses to lie with her. And he also refuses to even be with her in any kind of setting that might inevitably or even possibly lead to sin. He's doing everything he can to follow the Mike Pence rule and never be alone in a room with her without someone else present. But as hard as he may have tried to 
do that. Observe what happens starting in verse 11. The text says, Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. And this is no doubt the case because she had arranged to have all others out of the house at this particular moment when she knew Joseph would show up. All alone in the house with Joseph, she seizes the moment. Look at verse 12. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. Joseph realizes that he's all alone with her. And he realizes that this is not the time to be giving a speech like he did before. He realizes that there's only one appropriate response, and that is to run. And at the end of verse 12, the text says, And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And he had to know, I'm going to pay for this. But it's what I have to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, flee immorality. He doesn't simply say don't commit immorality. He says flee, run away from immorality. And part of the reason we're told to flee immorality is because we're not strong enough to loiter around it and still resist it without getting drawn into it. Joseph is humble enough to know this, guys. And he flees not just because he doesn't trust Potiphar's wife, but also he flees because he doesn't trust himself to stay in this place. So he flees and runs outside. Joseph, we would all say, has done absolutely the right thing, yet he will not be treated Accordingly, And this brings us to the next development in the story of the flourishing of Joseph from Potiphar's house all the way to prison. Number four, Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph of sexually assaulting her. She falsely accuses Joseph of sexually assaulting her. Her lust for Joseph suddenly now turns to the rage of a woman scorned. Observe what she does beginning in verse 13. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household. And it's probably here that she screamed to get the men of the household to come running. We learn later that she says she screamed and She probably did scream right here after she saw that Joseph had fled in order to get the men of the household to come running in. And when they came in, she said to them, see, he, speaking of her husband Potiphar, has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. Wow. Notice how she appeals to the racial prejudice of the men of their household by referring to Joseph as a Hebrew. She also says that Joseph was making sport of us. You might want to mark that word us, meaning all the Egyptians of this household 
to whom she is speaking. She wants the men of the household to view Joseph's offense against her as an offense against all of them. And this is her attempt to ingratiate herself to the men of the household so that they would be inclined to testify in her defense if, if need be. She then levels her accusation against Joseph himself. Observe what she says. He, Joseph, came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed. He left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. Potiphar's wife is a skillful liar. She claims here to be a Me Too victim. She claims the right to be believed, yet she is lying through her teeth. A passage like this should never, ever be used today to dismiss the accusations of a woman who accuses a man of sexually violating her. But this passage does remind us that a woman can lie just as easily as a man can lie and level a false accusation against an innocent man. That happens, and it's happening here. Neither a man nor a woman in such situations should automatically be believed without an honest examination of their testimonies and the evidence. The fact that Joseph has no witnesses to defend himself against her lies shows why we all must be very, very careful about being in situations where we are alone with someone of the opposite sex, especially if we are unsure of their intentions. After telling the men of the household her version of events, Potiphar's wife prepares to speak her accusations to her husband. Observe what she does in verse 16. The text says, So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. So she's intentionally arranging the scene so that when Potiphar comes home, he would see her with Joseph's garment beside her. And she, trust me, she's ready to turn on the emotions and act distraught as soon as Potiphar arrives. When Potiphar arrives home, observe what she does. Verse 17, then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Notice how she accuses Potiphar of being complicit in what happened by bringing this Hebrew slave into the house. She says, this Hebrew slave whom you brought to us. Her intention here is to knock Potiphar on his heels and leave him with the burden of doing something about this problem that he helped to create. She tells her husband that she screamed when Joseph tried to sexually assault her. And then she tells what Joseph did in response. He left his garment beside her. 
implying that he had taken the garment off in order to lie with her and force himself onto her. And then he fled outside, leaving his clothes behind. And the story she tells, the men of the household and now her husband, is a compelling story, rich in details and wickedly untrue. And Potiphar now has an awful choice on his hands. He is the husband of the woman who is making these accusations. And the man that the accusations are being made against is his favorite slave and number one right-hand man. And the reason for Jehovah's blessing on his household. What's he going to do? Well, this leads us to the fifth development in the story of the flourishing of Joseph in Potiphar's house and prison. Number five, Potiphar throws Joseph into prison. Observe how Potiphar responds in verse 19. The text says, Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. He's mad. We're actually not told in the passage who Potiphar is angry at, though, right? You notice that? The narrator of Genesis leaves that ambiguous for us. It could be that Potiphar believes his wife's story and he's angry at Joseph. Most likely, Potiphar doesn't really believe his wife and he's angry at her. And angry about the fact that he's now going to lose Joseph's faithful service. He's no doubt angry that this is an incident without any witnesses. It's a he said, she said kind of situation. And Potiphar knows that he's going to have no choice but to side with his wife. And her testimony over the word of a foreign slave. He's doing the calculations in his head, and he knows what he simply has to do. Normally, attempted rape of a man's wife was a capital offense where the life of the attempted rapist would be taken. He would get the death penalty. And this was especially true when the attempted rapist was a slave trying to rape a free woman. Yet we're told here that Potiphar merely puts Joseph in prison, which might be an indication that he has some serious doubts about his wife's story. The fact that he puts Joseph in the prison where the king's prisoners were confined might be another indication that he is not so sure that his wife's story is true. We're actually going to learn in the next chapter that the prison that he puts Joseph into is a prison that is in some way attached to Potiphar's own house. And you can read about that in chapter 40, verse 3. So it was, it was a prison that Potiphar himself personally oversaw. And perhaps Potiphar puts Joseph here into his own house prison in the hopes that Joseph's innocence might one day be established. We don't know. That said, Psalm 105, verse 18, gives us an interesting detail and tells us that when Joseph 
was placed in prison, we're told, and I quote, they afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. The Hebrew is his soul came into iron, indicating no doubt the depth to which his imprisonment impacted him personally. So this could not have been a pleasant experience for Joseph. Joseph is a good man. He's innocent of the charges that have been made against him. Yet here he is with his feet and fetters and iron chains being numbered with the transgressors, just as Christ would be centuries later. I'd love to be able to stand in front of you as a pastor of Cornerstone and say, obey God and always do what is right. And there will always be nothing but good outcomes that result from that. But I can't say that to you because that is certainly not always true. As Vadi Bakum says, obedience sometimes results in hardship. Sometimes telling the truth gets you fired. Sometimes playing by the rules gets you a fourth place ribbon while cheaters win gold, silver, and bronze. And sometimes refusing to go along with the wishes of an adulteress gets you thrown in prison. Don't be surprised when things don't immediately go so well after you have done the right thing. This is what happens to Joseph here in Genesis 39 He finds himself thrown in prison for a crime that he did not commit. But guess what, guys? Good news. It turns out that Joseph is not the only one who goes to prison in Genesis 39. Jehovah, God, goes to prison with him. And this brings us to the next development in the story of the flourishing of Joseph in Potiphar's house and prison Number six, God remains with Joseph and prospers him in prison. Observe what happens in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Evidently, being falsely accused and thrown in prison does not separate Joseph from the presence of God or from the love of God. We're told in verse 21, three things that God does for Joseph while he's in prison. He is with Joseph. He extended kindness to him. And the Hebrew word kindness is the Hebrew word chesed, which speaks of God's covenant loyalty to Joseph that followed Joseph even to prison. And we're told that God gave Joseph favor in the sight of of the chief jailer. God is lavishing his favor upon Joseph in a way that catches the eye of the chief jailer and it turns the heart of this jailer to think favorably toward Joseph. This happens to such an extent that the jailer ends up doing with Joseph exactly what Potiphar did with Joseph. Observe what happens in verse 22 and 23. And this is how the chapter ends. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he, Joseph, was responsible for it 
the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he, Joseph, did, the Lord made to prosper. There's just something about Joseph that makes people want to hand over responsibility to him. He's industrious. He's responsible. He's faithful. The blessing of God, the good of God is with him. Joseph is good at what he does. And by God's grace, the jailer ends up just putting him in charge of everything in connection with the prison. To his credit, it's evident that Joseph didn't just sit around and sulk in prison. It's obvious that he's up and about immediately seeking to serve and to be a blessing to the jailer, seeking to serve in whatever ways might be needful. He's not afraid to take on responsibilities and to show himself faithful. In other words, Joseph, though he doesn't want to be in prison, this is where God and his providence has put me and I will bloom in this place where I am planted right now. We're going to pick up with the narrative here next week, but let's stop here for today and just take some time to draw together a few lessons as we wrap up our study of this chapter. First of all, we observe in this chapter that blessing and suffering are our experience in the here and now. We learn from this chapter that the blessing of God in someone's life does not mean the absence of suffering. Genesis 39 also teaches us that suffering in a person's life does not mean the absence of blessing either. As God's people, we all experience a mixed bag of blessing, trials, temptations with advancements and setbacks. Just as we see in the life of Joseph in Genesis 39. So if you find that your life is filled with such contradictory things Joseph would say, welcome to the club. If you have blessing in your life, don't think it's strange that you encounter suffering. If you have suffering in your life, please don't lose sight of the blessings that are also in your life. We also learn from Joseph's life that As one writer says, they that walk uprightly are not to expect the reward of their righteousness as an immediate result. Sometimes that will happen. Often it doesn't. Joseph does exactly the right thing, yet he's falsely accused, sent to prison. In the end, we will see that he is vindicated, but not immediately. And Joseph, right now in prison, has to learn to trust God to work all of that out. As God's people, we should not be surprised when such things happen to us. We need to expect that injustice will sometimes prevail in our lives in the short term. And we should embrace that and commit ourselves to glorifying God in how we respond to that injustice. And trust that vindication will eventually come. If not in this life, it will in the next But what we also learn in Genesis 39, though, is that God is with his people. 
Please hear me when I say this. God is with his people while they suffer. God does not spare Joseph from betrayal and from slavery and from prison, but we see that he's with Joseph through it all. Four times in this chapter, we're told that God is with Joseph and God promises to be with you too if you're a believer in Jesus. I can't explain to you why God allows what he allows and all the reasons why God allows you to be brought into certain circumstances of difficulty, but I do know for a fact that he goes with you into those difficulties and he stands ready to bless you and actually bless others through you in the process. So I plead with you, don't, don't be a powder. Be faithful where God has put you and be a blessing to others. God's got this and vindication will come. If a better day lies in your future, nothing will get you there any faster than being faithful inside the circumstances where you find yourself right now. And by the way, I witnessed some of you in this flock doing exactly this in the midst of your difficulties. And I'm in awe of the grace of God at work in you. If we read up through Genesis 39 and did not know the rest of the story, it would just seem to us like, man, poor Joseph. He experiences one random misfortune after another. How unfortunate that he gets thrown into a pit by his brothers and then sold by them to traitors. How unfortunate that he ends up being taken down to Egypt and then sold into slavery in Potiphar's house. How unfortunate that he gets falsely accused and thrown in prison. But guys, God is always doing a million things. Always. And he's using all of such things that have happened to Joseph to move his plan of redemption forward. And we know that with hindsight in Joseph's case. Something is going to happen while Joseph is in prison that we'll see in the next chapter that will prove to be his ticket to Pharaoh's house. And in the end, everyone will look back and see that Joseph's year spent as a slave in Potiphar's house and as a prisoner were vital links in the chain that led to him becoming the second most powerful man in all of the land of Egypt who provided rescue for the people of Egypt, provided rescue for his own family, and also preserved the lineage of the Messiah so that you and I could have a savior today. For now, though, Joseph is in prison. And he simply has to trust that God is somehow, some way in control. And he's up to something good. And one day it will all be clear. There's also no doubt that God is doing a good work in Joseph's heart and in his character through all the ups and downs of what is happening to Joseph through the events of this chapter. In fact, in Psalm 105, verse 19, you can write that reference down. We're told that God was testing and refining Joseph. No doubt God is developing his administration skills in Potiphar's house. In prison, God is doing the same. 
There's little doubt Joseph also had some pride and youthful impatience that needed to be sifted and burned out of his character. And God is accomplishing even that through the humbling setbacks that are happening in his life, some of which we've seen today. And God is doing the same with you and me and our trials that confront us. Not only is God with us to bless us in the midst of our difficulties, but God is also doing a slow motion miracle in us to forge our character and to shape us, to burn the dross out of us and to produce good in our character so that we would be ready for that greater task that lies for us in the future. And he's using our hardships to accomplish that. Can we trust God with such things? On another note, we can all be so grateful that Joseph's, Joseph refused Potiphar's wife's sexual advances We read too many headlines nowadays about moral failures by spiritual leaders that bring such groaning and grief to our hearts. I just read headlines this week of the moral failures of a pastor who exploited his position of spiritual power over others. And assaulted them. This is a man I've sat at the table with and fellowship together with. There's too many headlines of such moral failures. And it's refreshing to read of Joseph's obedience to God. His refusal to give into temptation here in Genesis 39. Little could Joseph have imagined the far-reaching consequences of the choices he was making at this particular moment as he stood in front of Potiphar's wife hundreds of miles away from his family and from his father. His whole family's destiny would have been negatively impacted if Joseph had made the wrong choice in this moment when no one else was around to see. In fact, every one of us in this room benefit tremendously from the obedience of Joseph in this moment. Don't think for a minute that the choices you make in secret do not impact the lives of other people. So I could close this sermon today by saying to all of you, be like Joseph and say no to immorality. Obey God. That would be a good thing for me to say To all of you, we actually should learn from Joseph's example and realize that it is possible and it's right to say no to sin. But the best thing that I can do at the end of this message, the best thing all of us can do to make sure that we are like Joseph in moments of temptation is to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is indeed the greater Joseph. Jesus was tempted again and again and again in the wilderness by the devil himself, and he never sinned once in the wilderness or through the entirety of his life on earth. He lived a life of perfect righteousness, always doing nothing but good. And God was with him 
And God blessed him in everything that he did. We're told in Isaiah 53, verse 10, that the good pleasure of the Lord prospered in his hand. Yet he was falsely accused. And he was nailed to a cross. And he died on that cross. But because he was sinless, God vindicated him and raised him from the dead and ascended him to his own right hand so that from that position of power, Jesus Christ can now give forgiveness of sins to people who have not been like Joseph, people like you and me who have sinned and failed and come short of the glory of God. If you have never called upon the name of Jesus and entrusted control of your life over to him, I urge you to do that today. If you are a believer, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. See the grace that he has accomplished for you at the cross so that you can have pardon to your conscience and forgiveness of your sins through his shed blood at the cross. And realize that he who is forgiven much loves much. Be dazzled by his grace and fall in love with Jesus all over again. And allow his grace to melt your heart and serve as wind beneath your wings as you seek to live a life of holiness and obedience to him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Even the Bible itself is filled with so much brokenness and people who teach us by their wrong example what not to do. We just thank you for your work of grace in Joseph's life that gave him the wherewithal to choose wisely and rightly. And thank you for how Joseph points us to Jesus, the greater Joseph. And may Jesus be the one that our eyes are fixed upon this morning. If there's anyone here today, Lord, that has never looked to Jesus, I pray that you would open their eyes and turn their eyes to see Jesus like they've never seen him before and believe in him and call upon him as their Lord and Savior. And help all of us who are your people to fix our eyes upon Jesus and be dazzled by his holiness, his obedience, his grace. May we cherish all the good that has come to us because of the obedience of Jesus. And the obedience of Joseph in Genesis 39 is a mere whisper that points us to him. We thank you for this opportunity to give up our offerings to you, Lord. Receive the funds that we give in this offering and do much with every penny that is given for the glory of Jesus and for the spread of the message of the good news of salvation through him here in this community and around the world. We're blessed to be able to give to you this morning. Receive what we give, especially as we give ourselves to you. In the name of Jesus. And all God's people said.